This is the end of the book of Daniel. I have really enjoyed going through this. Daniel is, is one of the most varied books of the Bible in that you've got these stories that, that are like children's ministry stories, right? Everybody knows them. But then on the other end, you've got some of the most detailed and, and sometimes confusing prophecies that the Bible gives us. You have that apocalyptic genre of literature, as it's called there. But that makes it very, very interesting. And as we come to chapter 12, I want to remind us, as we always do, of the structure of the book. This is important because each little section is not on its own, but it fits within a larger structure. And there's, there's a couple of notes that we've been following, and I'm going to remind you one more time. Chapters 1 through 6 of Daniel are narrative. That's where you have the lion's den. That's where you have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Narrative 1 through 6. And then chapter 7 through 12 is the prophetic portion where we're looking to the future and Daniel is having dreams and visions of angels. Narrative and prophecy. You also have a language structure in the book of Daniel. You have Hebrew and Aramaic. Chapter 1, verse 1 through the first half of chapter 2, verse 4 is in Hebrew. Then from chapter 2, verse 4, the second half, to the end of chapter 7, it's in Aramaic, which was the common language of Babylon and that part of the world. And then chapter 8 through 12 picks back up in Hebrew. The Hebrew portions largely focus on the nation of Israel and their destiny. The Aramaic portion focuses largely on the nations, the Gentile nations, and their destiny. And within that Aramaic section, I went over this many times, but just to remind you, from chapter 2, verse 4 to chapter 7, verse 28, there is a chiastic structure. Remember, this is an X-shaped structure. It's an inverted parallel that discusses the fate of the nations. So you start in chapter 2 with the vision of the four kingdoms. Then you go to chapter 3, and you have the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, delivered from the fiery furnace. Then in chapter 4, you have Nebuchadnezzar when he thought he was a cow. Remember that? And he was humbled and gave glory to the Lord. Then the, the parallel comes back out. In chapter 5, you have Belshazzar who sees the handwriting on the wall and his kingdom is lost. There's another humbling of the king. Then in chapter uh, 6, you have the... Yeah, in chapter 6, you have Daniel in the lion's den, which parallels Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Another deliverance from danger. And chapter 7, you have the vision of the four beasts coming out of the sea, which parallels the four medals of the statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw. So you have all of this is about the changing of kingdoms, the kings being humbled and God's people being delivered. And right in the middle of it is you have, at the change of nation, people giving glory to the Lord. So just to remind you of these structural notes, and the final one is that chapter 10, 11, and 12 are one specific uh, section, whereas the rest of the book, each chapter has stood on its own. So we've seen some of our favorite stories. We've seen detailed prophecies about Alexander the Great and Antiochus Epiphanes. We've also seen revelations of the end of time, which that's everybody's favorite part of the book of Daniel. And uh, that's what we're going to be looking at today. Chapters 10 through 12 is that last vision that Daniel has of the angel of the Lord giving him revelation of the end of time. And we made the transition at the end of chapter 11 from history to prophecy. And that's in verse uh, 36, it changes over. And when it says, and the king, and it begins just to go beyond known history and beyond what we know of of what happened among the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. We talked about that. Verse 40 mentions the time of the end. Not going to get into all of that again. Let me just say right now, we're talking about the end of the world. So that's pretty cool. Somebody asks you, what did you learn at church today? You said we talked about the end of the world. That's pretty fun. 
So this section is going to finish that story that he's been telling, but also draw the whole book to a conclusion. And in chapter 12, in addition to prophecies of the end times and all that, you have the clearest mention of the resurrection in the Old Testament. And I don't mean the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean the resurrection of the body, the eternal state. The rest of the Old Testament moved in hints and shadows that there might be life after life and that we are going to live again. Daniel 12 just comes right out and says it. And of course, the New Testament is all about that, but it's called progressive revelation. God revealed things in stages culminating in Jesus Christ and his gospel. And it's important to know that because the book of Daniel has been all about exile. It's been all about being beaten down by these wicked nations. What's going to happen at the end of all this? God's kingdom is going to come, and everybody that didn't get a chance to live under God's kingdom is going to be raised from the dead to experience it forever and ever. And that's been the main theme of the book of Daniel, the coming of the kingdom of God and our need for hope and endurance until it comes. So let's look at chapter 12. We're just going to look at verse 1 and kind of catch up on where we've been first, and then we'll move on from there. At that time meaning at the time we've been discussing, which according to verse 40, chapter 11, is the time of the end. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince. And you know prince in this context in Daniel is talking about an angelic prince. The great prince who has charge of your people Israel. There shall be a time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. You thought COVID was bad. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. The chapter divisions, of course, were made later in your Bible, and I'm very grateful for whoever put the chapters and verses in my Bible. But really, verses 1 through 3 or 4 probably belong with chapter 11. So in order to really grasp what he's getting at here, because he's in the middle of a thought, we're going to back up a little bit to look at the, the wars of the Antichrist, the spiritual background of those conflicts. And not just that, but last time I, I talked about Armageddon a little bit. I wasn't entirely satisfied with how I did. I felt like I might have muddled a few things. So I've tried to be very, very careful and very precise this time. What we're going to do right now, because verse 1 kind of gives us the last piece of this puzzle, we're going to go through everything that we have learned so far as a church regarding eschatology and end times, from studying the book of Thessalonians, from studying some in the book of Luke, and studying here now through the book of Daniel. And we're going to tie it all together to explain what is going to happen at the time of the end. Now, of course, there is a ton of study that is behind all of this. And if you're not sure why I'm saying something, I'll give you as many verses as I can. But again, books and books and books have been written on these things. I hope this will at least just give you a sense of the trajectory of where we're going. And there's always more to add to this. We haven't studied Revelation yet. We haven't studied Isaiah or Ezekiel or Zechariah yet. There's more pieces to add to the puzzle, but we've got enough for to, to keep on going. So at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. There shall be a time of trouble such as never been, but then your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name is written in the book. All right, that gives us the end. Let's build up to that and see what the Bible tells us is going to happen in the last days. Here's our first point. If you're taking notes, is the removal of restraint. None of these things that I'm about to describe can begin until the restrainer has been removed. This is from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 6-8. through 8. Paul said in 2 Thessalonians that the Antichrist is coming, 
But he says the Antichrist cannot come until the restraint of heaven has been removed. Meaning if, if Satan could do this today, he would. But he can't because God is restraining him. Paul tells us, though, in that chapter that the restrainer will be removed. And without going into great detail, we believe that is also a reference to the rapture of the church. That the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit through the church as salt and light on the earth is what is in fact holding back the Antichrist from coming. But there will come a time where God removes that hand of restraint, and I believe that will be the rapture of the church. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, I tell you a mystery, meaning something that has not yet been revealed, so don't look for it in the Old Testament, okay? I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. Right? But we shall be changed in the twinkling of an eye. The corruptible shall put on incorruptible. That we're going to be caught up in the air. That's what the word rapture means. Kind of like a raptor, a bird of prey, like snatches something up. It's like that. We're going to be snatched up to be with the Lord forever before any of this happens. Now, there are some that disagree with that, but that's our position, and I'm not going to fight about it today. The removal of restraint has to happen first, and we believe that is the rapture. So there's no point in looking for the Antichrist or trying to find clever ways to use 666 if you are a pre-tribulational believer. But let's move past that. Once that happens, number two, the, the thing that is going to happen next is the rise of the final empire. The final empire. This is going to be a kingdom that is going to dominate the globe. Daniel chapter 7, verse 7, he saw that last terrible beast come rising up out of the sea. Remember, and it wasn't like anything that came before. It was crushing and dominating the whole world. And I'm using representative verses here. There's plenty of things that talk about this. According to Revelation 17, and also a, a verse in Daniel 9, this empire is going to be the revival of a previous empire. That it's going to be like something that has come before. Uh, remember, the, the feet of the statue were of iron and clay, and the legs that had come before it were iron. This is specifically mentioned in Revelation 17, talking about one of the heads of the dragon. That is, a revival of a previous empire. And the, the most common interpretation is this is a revived Roman empire. And some people have broadened that out to mean European or even just Western. I think at that point it starts to kind of lose its meaning of a revived empire. But I think uh, one of the other alternate interpretations that really has an awful lot to commend it is that this is a revived Islamic caliphate that dominated the same territory as the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, same territory as Alexander the Great, same territory as Persia and Babylon. Rome kind of seems the odd man out there, but again, that's a minority view. In any case, it'll be some empire reviving. Consider how Adolf Hitler wanted the Third Reich to be a revival of the Roman, Holy Roman Empire. And uh, again, he was stopped because God was restraining him, right? And in fact, his attempts to destroy the Jews led to the nation of Israel becoming its own nation. So little a antichrist, right? Final empire, which is a revived empire. And according to Revelation 17, 12, and according to Daniel chapter 7, this will be a 10-king coalition. This is not just one empire. It's an empire composed of 10 different kingdoms. The beast had 10 horns. The feet of iron and clay had 10 toes. The beast in the end of Revelation has 10 horns also. 10 kings. So when the rapture happens, 
The Bible tells us that there's going to be seven more years. We'll discuss that in a minute. But there will be the rise of an empire that covers the world, a revival of a previous empire that is composed of ten allied kings that will give up their own authority to this empire. The next thing that will happen, according to the Bible, number three, there will be a covenant made with Israel. Now, here's where we introduce the Antichrist. Revelation 6, verse 2, you see the image of the man on a white horse with a bow in his hand, conquering and to conquer. Daniel chapter 9 talks about that coming wicked prince who will make a covenant of peace with Israel. This is what will happen next, that this empire will be rising. There will be a figurehead leader, maybe like an Alexander the Great general type, who will forge a covenant that will involve peace with Israel. Again, consider, if anybody could make that deal today, everybody would be rather impressed with that guy. And according to Revelation 11, we believe that this will involve the rebuilding of the temple. I'm of the mind that the temple will likely not be rebuilt until after the rapture, but if it happens before that, it's not going to hurt my feelings. But, I mean, just consider right now, I mean, if they were to try to rebuild that temple today, Islamic nations all over the world would go to war, and it would be World War III very fast. So imagine if that's part of the deal that is forged with this final empire and the nation of Israel, led specifically by this one figurehead guy, okay? Now... This is where we can connect to what we see in Daniel 12. It says, At that time shall arise Michael. Jude 9 tells us that Michael is the archangel. There is some traditional literature, the Old Testament Apocrypha, that tells us there are seven archangels. That's not canon. But if you've ever read Paradise Lost and you meet guys like Raphael and Uriel, these are some of the other archangels that are named. But it's not Bible. The only one we know of in the Bible is Michael. And he's the, the angelic prince, the angelic overseer of Israel. And it tells us here, at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people. He will arise. He will fight against Satan. I would like you to turn to this one, Revelation 12, because this is the parallel passage to what we're talking about in Daniel chapter 1. At that time shall arise. I believe, based on the timing of, the, of Revelation 12 and what follows after, that Michael arising to fight is going to more or less happen midway through that seven-year period. And I'll explain why as we read this. Revelation 12, 7 through 9. Now war arose in heaven. That, that's just a cool sentence, isn't it? War arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon is the symbol of Satan in the book of Revelation. He was a serpent in the book of Genesis. He's kind of the ultimate serpent in the book of Revelation. And the dragon and his angels, we call them demons, fought back. But he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. You know, in the book of Job, where Satan says, I've been going to and fro and walking up and down and accusing Job before God. Michael's had enough of this guy, it seems, and drives him out. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who's called the devil, and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So something changes in the spiritual realm. Michael will arise. Michael will fight back. He's seeing what Satan is doing, and he's going to finally be given permission from God in heaven, get him out of here. And if you skip down, there's other things that happen. 
But if you see verse 17 of that chapter, then the dragon became furious with the woman, representing Israel, and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. And if you keep reading, out of the sea comes the beast, comes the Antichrist. So let's, let's put these two things together. We've already seen in Daniel, especially chapter 10, that the rise and fall of nations has a parallel in the spiritual world, the fighting between the princes of these various nations, angelic spiritual warfare. And as this final empire is rising and the Antichrist is beginning to gain notoriety and power, Michael is going to step up in the spiritual and put a stop to Satan. And he'll be cast out of heaven. And that, we just read, will infuriate Satan. And that is when he will initiate the rest of his plan. And that is what we know next in verse uh, well, number five here as the abomination of desolation. Daniel 9, 27 tells us that this will happen halfway through the week, halfway through the seven. So we have three and a half years of not really peace, but it's not as bad as it's going to get until Satan is struck down. And then, he's, as we read, he'll stand on the sea and the Antichrist will rise to the fore. Whereas before you had this ten-kingdom coalition, this final empire that seemed to be led by this figurehead kind of guy. I imagine, at least in our context, people are wanting to have some sort of democratic or oligarchic structure. But that's going to end and it's going to go full dictatorship here. Revelation 13.3 has a very mysterious reference that there will be a head wound that the Antichrist will suffer and recover from it. And the rest of the world is going to marvel at that and go after him because of that and say, we're going to follow this guy. I truly do not know what that means. Some people believe it might be he'll survive an assassination attempt, that it's a counterfeit resurrection that Satan will bring about. We don't know. But something will happen that will shock the world Devil's behind it because he just got kicked out of heaven. And according to so many places in the Bible, the Antichrist will put an end to temple worship, which is part of their deal. He's going to break it. He's going to go into the Holy of Holies, declare himself to be God, and set up a golden image of himself in God's temple. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 4, Paul says that. He said he will take his place in the temple of God and declare himself to be God. That's called the abomination of desolation or the abomination that causes desolation. Because what comes after that? What does it say? A time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. You know who else said that? Jesus said that. And he said, when you see the abomination of desolation, in Matthew 24, Jesus said this to all the Jews that will be living at that time. He says, when you see that, get out of Jerusalem. He says, don't even go down into the house to grab anything and pray that you're not pregnant because you're going to have to run for your life because the Antichrist is standing in the temple declaring himself to be God. They're not going to allow the Jews to continue doing what they're doing. The symbolism of Revelation that I just read a few minutes ago is that Satan is coming down to make war against the remainder of God's people. He's going to strike them down. And the great tribulation has begun. The terminology we tend to use is that seven years is called the tribulation period, but that last half, that last three and a half, that's really where most of the terrible stuff happens, and that's called the great tribulation if you want to make a distinction. So the abomination of desolation, that's the midpoint. What comes after that? Number six, intense 
persecution. Revelation 13 talks about not just the Antichrist, not just the beast out of the sea, but there's another symbolic beast that comes out of the earth that he calls the false prophet. Revelation 13, 12 tells us he's going to go around the world performing false miracles to persuade the world to follow the Antichrist. He's going to call down fire from heaven. He's going to do all sorts of things that people are going to believe that that's God's power, but in fact, it's Satan's power. And he's going to persecute anybody who resists. This is where you get all of your scary Antichrist things that people love to talk about in the news. This is where there's going to be an image of the Antichrist that everyone has to worship. This is where the mark of the beast comes in. Halfway through the tribulation, all right? So if you've not seen an abomination of desolation, do not be afraid. You have not taken the mark of the beast, okay? But you have to have that in order to buy and to sell. It says a mark on the forehead or the hand. We have no idea what that is other than that it is a mark. And it will be obvious on the day. And if you refuse to do that, your head will be chopped off. So that's the other thing. Right? You, you don't refuse the mark of the beast without getting your life taken from you. And that's also where it says the number of the beast, 666. And I believe that's something that will not be revealed until the day. I think on the day, it'll be obvious what it is. But that false prophet is going to be the one that spearheads this worldwide persecution of Jews and of anybody that comes to faith in Christ during this time. And there will be many. Now we start to get to the military aspects of this here. We learned about this last time, the African assault. Last week we saw that the Antichrist, that prince who is to come, will have to fight against an attack from Egypt, Libya, and it said Kush, which is modern-day Sudan. Okay? Those three nations, all kind of in the same region of northeastern Africa, that they will attack the Antichrist. And according to Daniel 11, 40 through 43, he will have a terrible response and will crush those other nations. I think it is very likely that those three nations are the three horns of the ten that are going to be removed to make way for the Antichrist which gives us some indication about what nations will be following after him. This is where that Islamic theory has an awful lot of weight because most of the specific nations mentioned throughout the Bible to be in league with the Antichrist are today Islamic nations. But I digress. Daniel 7 tells us that in any case, that little horn, remember that picture? The Antichrist will remove three of those ten kings till it's just him and the seven, but he will be now ruling as, as the the king over all the other kings, the dictator, the one guy. And it seems like it's an attack from Africa that will be the point of transition there. And it doesn't say exactly when in the timeline that'll happen. I'm inclined to think that will happen right after the abomination of desolation because those two things are tied together. And also, if your country made an alliance with 10 other countries and now your prime minister stands up and says, I'm God, everyone has to worship me, there will be some nations that have a problem with that. And so they may be like, uh, I don't think so. This is supposed to bring peace throughout the world. This is supposed to... Be so no, you don't get to do this. But he will crush them. And that last three and a half years is going to be the, one of the most terrible that the world has ever known. It will be the most terrible the world has ever known. Then you start to get to the, number, the kinds of things that are going to happen at the end of that seven-year period. And this is the one that I think has the most question marks for me. The destruction of Babylon... The Antichrist's capital city is called throughout the Bible Babylon. Now the big question is, is Babylon a literal name or is Babylon a symbolic name? I think it, 
either one is possible, although I tend to go literal in most cases because it'll talk about the Antichrist having his base on the banks of the Euphrates River. And if you look at cities like Dubai or cities like Abu Dhabi that have been built out of the desert in just a couple of years to now that they're these economic powerhouses, why not rebuild Babylon? Especially if you are trying to make peace with Israel, at the very least, you're going to have to appease some of these Islamic nations. Maybe they'll want Babylon rebuilt or maybe it's Rome, maybe it's Jerusalem. I don't think it's that one, but that is a possibility. In any case, Daniel 11.44 tells us that at some point, no news from the north and east will alarm him. It will alarm him. And that he will then march off conquering to conquer. I think that is likely when he will march on Babylon. Revelation 17 tells us that Babylon will be destroyed. And here's something I think a lot of folks miss. The Bible says that God will destroy Babylon. It'll be his thunder. It'll be his earthquake that destroys it. But Revelation 17, 16 makes it abundantly clear. It is the Antichrist who will function as God's instrument in destroying Babylon. Because that's where you get the picture of the woman riding the beast. And the woman, the great harlot, it calls her, who represents all the false religions of the world. It seems that there's going to be one very pagan religion that is pushed upon the world through this final empire. But it says that the Antichrist is going to hate that. He's going to hate that city. Maybe because he wants all the glory for himself and he doesn't want to share it with anybody. In any case, Babylon will be destroyed. And if not the Antichrist himself, one of his allies will do it. And I think that is probably connected to the, no the news from the north and east that will alarm him. So theory number one, the Antichrist hears that somebody in Babylon says something to the effect of, well, you don't have to worship him. You really ought to be following us. Or we don't need him. We don't need this guy. Or maybe he hears that they're trying to raise allies against him. So he marches on a punitive expedition and crushes his own capital city. Alternately, number two, there's infighting between the Antichrist kingdoms and his city is destroyed. That's possibility. Number three, that an enemy of the Antichrist destroys the city of Babylon, but I don't think that one's very likely. The point is, Babylon will be destroyed, and according to the book of Revelation and elsewhere, that destruction will be the trigger of the very, very end. And what happens at the very, very end? Well, it's Armageddon. And we didn't talk about this enough last time, so we're going to do this. Revelation 16 verse 12 tells us that the Euphrates River is going to dry up. Maybe if they had some kind of exchange of weapons that just blasted Babylon into oblivion, it would reroute the flow of water. Who knows? Maybe it is just all divine, God just removing the water. But it tells us in Revelation 16, that drying up of the river will enable armies from the east to march towards Israel. I do not believe these are enemies of the Antichrist. These are the armies of the Antichrist. Revelation 16 tells us that he will gather his armies at the valley of Megiddo in Israel, which is where you get the word Armageddon. Har means valley in Hebrew, and Megiddo is the name of the valley. And Napoleon fought wars there. There's been all kinds of battles that have been fought there. Daniel 11.44 tells us that the Antichrist will set his palatial tents in the land of Israel between the mountain and the sea. I think it's the same thing. He's going to gather his army from all over the world, especially the east. Why? so that they can attack Jerusalem. Because remember, this is Satan inspiring this. So the next point, number 10, is the sack of Jerusalem. The Antichrist 
and his allies in the north, especially according to the Bible, will attack Jerusalem, besiege it, and lay waste to it. If you are familiar with your prophetic studies, I'm going to explain this. If not, don't worry about it. Ezekiel 38 and 39 talks about the Gog and Magog invasion of Israel. I believe that that is the same event as the Battle of Armageddon. Tim LaHaye believes this is something that happens prior to the tribulation. He largely says that in measure because he thinks you need to find some way to eliminate these Islamic nations to make way for a revived Roman Empire, although I don't think God needs that to happen at all. Uh, I think that if you look at the descriptions, it's armies from the north and east attacking Jerusalem, laying waste to it, and being destroyed by an earthquake. That's exactly what is described about the Battle of Armageddon. I think it's the same thing. So you can do your own study on that. You can disagree. That's okay, too. What we do know from Zechariah 14, verse 2, Jerusalem will be surrounded, besieged, and laid waste to. It said that there will be plunder, there will be rape, and that half the city is going to flee to the wilderness as a result of this. And that's what Revelation 12 tells us also, that the destruction of Jerusalem by the Antichrist will lead to another mass exodus of Jews out of the city. The idea being those that weren't smart enough to leave when the abomination of desolation was set up are going to face the wrath of the Antichrist and his army. Well, now what do we have? We have the Antichrist with Jerusalem destroyed, king of the world, undisputed king of the world right now, and the Jews have run to hide in the wilderness. That's number 11. What's going to happen in the wilderness here? The Antichrist and his armies will pursue them. And this is when Zechariah 12 verse 10 tells us that God is going to pour out a spirit of grace upon the Jews to repent. Romans 11.25 that tells us that there's a hardness of heart over the Jewish people now, that's going to be lifted. It's going to be removed. And it seems to be, according to Zechariah 12, the destruction of Jerusalem again is what is going to cause them to finally break and give their, their hearts to Jesus. They're going to call out for Messiah to save them. Many people believe that uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum is the one that's put this theory out there that the Jews will be hiding in something similar, if not the actual location of Petra in the desert of, of Edom, modern day Jordan. Because we read in Revelation already, a place in the wilderness is prepared for the Jews to hide. And we know the next thing is that when Jesus returns, he returns to fight in the land of Edom at Basra. So, Maybe they're hiding in Petra, maybe they're not. It does not specify. But it does say that they're hiding in the wilderness, and it does indicate that when Jesus returns to save them, to answer their prayers when they finally call upon him, he'll return, according to Revelation 19, riding on the clouds in fury. <laughs> Jesus is coming as a lion this time. And it tells us, according to Isaiah 34, he will descend into the wilderness. Some people even believe he'll descend at Mount Sinai, although I haven't seen that demonstrated. But that would, be, that would kind of fit, wouldn't it? Making his way to the land of Edom to fight at Basra. Isaiah 34 says, the sword of God will descend on Edom, descend upon Basra. And he will rescue the Jews and slaughter the armies of the Antichrist. Who can stand against the beast? Jesus can Jesus can. That's where you get that prophecy of Isaiah 63, 1 through 6, where it says, Who is this coming up from the land of Edom, from the land of Basra? And why is your robe splattered with blood? And they say, Have you been in the wine press, right? Have you been treading grapes and you're getting the juice all over you? And prophecy goes, Well, in a manner of speaking, 
I've been treading the winepress of the wrath of God Almighty. In Revelation 19, it says that Jesus will come with a robe dipped in blood. It ain't his blood. That's his enemy's blood. He's going to slaughter the armies of the Antichrist. And then, according to Habakkuk 3, verse 3, where it says, The Lord came from Paran. The Lord came from Taman. He will come from Edom. And there are some that believe this is going to be the same trajectory out of Mount Sinai through the, the wilderness to the promised land that Jesus is going to repeat that in essence. It's going to be the consummation of what should have been, the final promised land. But he will march on Jerusalem. That's when Zechariah 14 tells us that he will set his foot on the Mount of Olives, which, as you know, overlooks the city of Jerusalem. And when he does, it tells us there will be a massive earthquake that's going to level Jerusalem. So why is Jesus going to level Jerusalem? Because remember, it's been attacked and destroyed and it's filled up with the Antichrist people. He says it's going to it's going to open up the gates, it's going to open up the walls, and all the, the Jews are going to escape while Jesus steps in and finishes the battle. Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians, Jesus Christ is going to kill the Antichrist with the breath of his mouth. And Zechariah tells us what kind of plague God is going to use to destroy the Antichrist's armies. It says their flesh is going to melt off their bones. So there's that to look forward to. I don't know what he's going to say. Maybe he's just going to say dead. And it's going to, they're just going to melt right in front of him. But this is when you get Joel chapter 3. Have you ever read this passage? Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. I've heard that put forth as, a, as an evangelistic message. That's fine. That is not what that passage is about. Because if you keep reading, it says, blood flows in the valley of decision. So if you're, that's not an altar call, man. That's a warning. Although I guess you could use it in that way. But that's when it says that in the valley of Jehoshaphat, the valley of decision, that's when the Antichrist armies are going to be destroyed. The Jehoshaphat Valley is the Kidron Valley. If you know where that is, that's where the blood would flow out of the temple when they drained the blood from the sacrifices. It's right there. You get the picture like in, when Elijah slaughtered the prophets of Baal. It's going to be, that's where all the executions happen. It's right outside Jerusalem in that valley, and the blood is going to flow to the horse's bridle, it says in another place. That's pretty, that's a lot of blood. So that's what we have here. I'm just going to run through these real fast one more time to show you where we are and where we've been. The removal of restraint comes first. When does that happen? It might happen now. Didn't happen now. Might happen today, <laughs> this year, next time. There's nothing stopping it from happening. That's the point. So, you know, it's interesting to look at things that might look as sign of the times. Jesus said, I'm coming like a thief in the night, and no one's going to be ready for it. After that, there's going to be a final empire that's going to rise up that will make a covenant with Israel of peace. At that time, after three and a half years, there will be war in heaven. Satan will be kicked out and cast down to the earth. He will prompt his Antichrist to commit the abomination of desolation, which will then result in intense persecution of God's people all over the world. There will be African nations that attack the Antichrist, but he will crush them as he consolidates power. At some point, the destruction of Babylon, his capital city, will happen. And after that happens, it will make way for him to assemble his armies at Armageddon. He will sack the city of Jerusalem, pursue the Jews into the wilderness, and that's where God will pour out a spirit of repentance on their heart. They will finally recognize Jesus as their Messiah, cry out for him to save them, and Jesus will descend into the wilderness 
wipe out his armies there, travel to Jerusalem. He'll plant his foot on the mountain overlooking Jerusalem, and he's not riding on a donkey this time. This time the earth makes way for him. An earthquake will rock the city, and he will execute all of Israel's enemies there, and that will be the end of the Antichrist. The Bible has told us what is going to happen. And there's so much more to discuss. There's all kinds of things that I didn't even get into there. But this is the story of the Antichrist and his doomed wars. And I do want to mention again in passing the Jewish character of these prophecies. Daniel is talking about his nation. We're focused on Israel, not the church right here. This, according to Daniel 12, is the worst time to be alive ever. Time of trouble such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But it will end with a rousing victory by the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Amen. Amen. Well, let's keep reading. Verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. As I said, verse 2 is the most open revelation of the coming resurrection in the entire Bible so far. Many who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. This is why the New Testament says that when someone died, they what? They fell asleep. They fell asleep. Now, the Old Testament had hinted at this. Psalm 1610, David wrote, You will not abandon my soul to the grave or let your Holy One see corruption. Job wrote in Job 19, I know that my Redeemer lives. At the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. But both of those were poetic, and maybe people could have taken them a different way. The Jews debated over this. That's where you get the Pharisees, who believed in the resurrection, and the Sadducees, who didn't. From the beginning, death has been the problem. But death is going to be defeated in our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, it already has been, isn't it? The New Testament confirms there will be a bodily resurrection after the last battle. And as you see Daniel, he div- this resurrection is divided into two parts. I'm going to read this from Revelation 20. Revelation 20 is what happens right after Jesus returns and wins the last battle. Revelation 20. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. The resurrection of the body. When you die now, if you are in Christ, your soul is present with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.8 makes that very plain. We know this because in Ephesians 4, it tells us that when Jesus descended into the earth, he led captivity captive. It's what's called the harrowing of hell. That those souls that were righteous and had died in faith for the coming Messiah, Jesus proclaimed the good news to them and brought them out of that place into heaven with his Father. So when a Christian dies, they go to heaven. But that's not the last stop. 
The Bible tells us that we are waiting to be clothed again. That spirits that have not yet been raised from the dead are waiting and longing for it. Your body is not supposed to be separated from your soul. It's not how God made you. And those that have already died in Christ are going to return with Jesus when he comes. 2 Thessalonians 4.16, the dead in Christ will rise first. That's the rapture, right? Colossians 3.4 says that when Christ himself appears, you shall also appear with him in glory. So when Jesus descends into the wilderness, we're going to be there with him. Ready to say, cool. <laughs> this is going to be, this resurrection of those that had died in the tribulation will be at the inauguration of the kingdom. What's going to happen when Jesus, when the battle's over and all the enemies have been executed and the Antichrist is dead and the blood is flowing in the Kidron Valley? couple things. Number one, Revelation 20, Satan will be bound. God's going to let loose this giant angel that's going to tie him up with a chain and lock him in the bottomless pit for a thousand years so that he might not deceive the nations. For a thousand years, no temptation except that which comes from your own flesh. Matthew 25 tells us that when the Son of Man comes and all his holy ones with him, he will sit on his glorious throne and divide the nations before him as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And so everybody that survives that tribulation who has not yet been resurrected, is going to be judged. And the righteous, he'll say, enter into the kingdom. You, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. All of that, right? And they'll say, when, Lord? He said, you did it to the least of my brethren. I think one of the main thrusts of that, when everybody else was persecuting my people, you didn't let them be persecuted. And that's Christians here. Who else is going to be on the Jews' side in the time of the tribulation. Nobody. But it says he'll turn to the wicked, and Jesus on his throne in Jerusalem, splattered with the blood of his enemies, will say, Depart from me, you cursed ones, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. There's going to be judgment. And those that have survived will enter into the kingdom. Jesus is going to establish a reign on the earth for a thousand years. Everything that has been broken by the Antichrist is going to be healed in Jesus. Revelation 19, 15 tells us that we will rule with Christ at that time. So you will have men and women living and dying as usual, but you'll have Christ reigning in Jerusalem, and you'll have the immortal resurrected kings and queens of God reigning on the earth. That's pretty cool, isn't it? The wicked dead will remain dead until the end of that time when the final judgment comes. And I wish I could get into it for time's sake. Let me just put it this way real quick. Satan will be released. He will deceive the nations one more time. They'll march on Jerusalem one more time, and then they will be defeated one more time. And that's when the end comes. That's when the sky is rolled up as a scroll. That's when the heaven and earth pass away, and God makes a new one. The resurrection. Every time Jesus spoke about everlasting life, he was making reference to Daniel chapter 12. Everlasting life. Some will rise to life. Some will rise to everlasting contempt. Because before that new world, that new heaven comes, he's going to rise everybody else from the dead so that they can be sent to hell forever. And the wise are those who rise again to shine like stars in the sky. Those who make others wise. Wise to what? To salvation. The message that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus came to tell us how you're one of those raised from the dead to everlasting life. And he says, the wise are those that spread that message. Can I just say briefly, evangelism 
is telling people how to live forever. Stop being embarrassed about it. Well, they won't want to listen. They don't know. You've got, you've got ancient secrets from God. Don't be embarrassed. Daniel is told here to seal the book, meaning to finish it primarily, right? That's the last thing you're going to hear from me. But also kind of this to, to keep it secret, meaning this is not going to be known. People aren't going to understand it. Revelation 22 verse 10 has the opposite. It says, do not seal the book. Why? Is it because the time is short? I think that's a great example of how things will make more sense from the book of Revelation as they happen, just as Daniel makes more sense now that a lot of it has already happened, right? Verse 5, Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others, two other what? Angels, stood, one on this bank of the stream, one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, that's the angel of the Lord, perhaps even Christ himself before his incarnation, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time, three and a half years. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. You ever feel that way? <laughs> then I said, oh my Lord, what will be the outcome of these things? Meaning, tell me more. And he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Right? That's as much information as you're getting right now. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. And none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. Back to this image by the river, two angels, the man who may be Christ himself, and the angels ask, how long? Remember, we just discussed the, you know, Archangel Michael fighting and coming to an end until the resurrection. I said, how long? And he answers with a solemn oath, it'll be three and a half years, which is the same duration of the great tribulation that is always given. Daniel 7.25. Daniel 9.27 says it's half of a week. Half of seven is three and a half. Revelation 11 says that. Revelation 12. Revelation 13. The point is it's the second half of that seven years. And Daniel has questions. But he said, I'm not giving you any more. Kind of like in Acts chapter 1 when the disciples said, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons that the Father has set by his own authorities. I heard somebody say one time, well, I don't think we can know the time, but we can know the season. He said, no, not times or seasons, nor day, nor hour, none of it. But he says, but you will be my witnesses. Your job is not to worry about when this is going to happen. Your job is to be wise and to make others wise by testifying of the resurrection of Jesus so that they can rise from the dead on that last day also to everlasting life. Because it's only the righteous that are going to benefit from this message, he says. And he gives us some more interesting timestamps here. 1,290 days, 1,335 days. According to the 30-day Hebrew calendar, three and a half years is 1,260 days. So he's giving us two other timelines here, one of which is 30 days longer, the other is 45 days longer than that. So 
We've already seen this in other passages and what he just said. From the abomination of desolation to the end, the return of Christ is 1,260 days. So what happens at 1,290? I think that's probably 30 days where Jesus is cleansing the world and judging the wicked. Until the end end, right? Until he's won the war, but he's he's kind of the mop-up operation. Judgment is happening. What happens 45 days after that? That he says, you better hope you make it to that day. The inauguration of the kingdom. That's when Satan will be bound. That's when the people of God will be crowned and given their commissions for the next thousand years. He's going to be establishing a real kingdom. And he says, wait until the end of those days. The wise will endure to the end, meaning the wise will hear this message and will take it to heart so that they might be there when the kingdom begins. Jesus said in Matthew 10, you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Every time you study Bible prophecy, your lesson is to endure through every persecution and every antichrist. Even if you're not in this time specifically, you must endure until your end with steadfast faith. But verse 13, go your way till the end. That's kind of our lesson for for our lives. Go your way until the end and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Daniel's assured you're going to be there on that final day, Daniel. You're about to finish your race and you've done a great job. And that's all that truly matters in life. Are you going to be there on that final day or not? Jesus said in Luke 10, Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. We've learned a lot about angels and the end of the world in the book of Daniel, but I want us to always remember that the most important thing is that your names are written in the book because that's what it says in Daniel 12, that the ones that will be delivered are those whose names are written in the book of life. Jesus didn't give us a date. He just told us he's coming swiftly. Would you be ready if he came today? Acts 17, 30 and 31, Paul said, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. How do we know that all this is true? That those events are going to take place? That there's going to be a final judgment? That there's going to be a resurrection at the end, either to contempt or to life? Because Jesus rose from the dead. I don't know if I believe all that. If you believe Jesus rose from the dead, it's a sign of those things. That's how we know resurrection is coming. Because he rose from the dead. If he didn't rise, how do you expect to rise on that final day? If he couldn't save himself, how is he going to save you? But he did. Which means he can. There's only one person that can save you from death, and that's the one that already beat death himself. And that is the ultimate lesson of the book of Daniel as we close now. Every kingdom will fall before the kingdom of God. That statue that was struck with the rock that grew and covered the whole earth and became a mountain, that's Christ's kingdom. It will never pass away. Doesn't matter who's president, doesn't matter who's king, doesn't matter what dictator rises or what system falls, communism, capitalism, doesn't matter. Christ will be king over all. 
and he will reign forever and ever. And when that millennium ends, he will crush the final rebellion of Satan and start a brand new world. And we have next to no information about that, but it's going to be the next story, the next adventure, and who knows what it's going to be like.